Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. In Chapter 30, Sir William Lucas, convinced his daughter Charlotte is happy enough in her new marriage, leaves Lizzie and Mariah to continue their visit at Hunsford. The dinners at Rosings continue. Lizzie silently applauds Charlotte for picking kind of an ugly room in her house as her sitting room. It means Collins isn't around as much. Lizzie goes on long walks. She enjoys Charlotte's company for sometimes 30 whole minutes at a time. Until Darcy arrives. He is visiting his aunt at Rosings with his cousin, Fitzwilliam. And even though Lizzie doesn't like him, at least it's a change. When Darcy visits the Collinses, Lizzie uses it as an opportunity to grill him about the Jane and Bingley affair. Darcy won't crack. But Charlotte is beginning to notice that Mr. Darcy might be showing her friend some special attention. In Chapter 31, Darcy's poor manners get juxtaposed brilliantly with Fitzwilliam's. Fitzwilliam is a colonel in the army. He's a joint guardian of Darcy's younger sister. And most importantly, he's charming, knowledgeable, extroverted, and clearly likes Lizzie a lot. In fact, he reminds Lizzie of Wickham. Fitzwilliam, the narrator remarks, talks like a well-bred man, whereas Darcy just sits quietly. The implication is clear. Also in this chapter, we get an emotionally vital scene. The Collins crew hasn't been invited to Rosings since Darcy and Fitzwilliam arrived to town. Lady Catherine is perfectly happy with her current guests. But one day after church, the invitation gets extended. So we see Lizzie and Darcy together again. Fitzwilliam is as charming as ever. Darcy is as silent as ever. They are physically separated in the room. Fitzwilliam and Lizzie flirting away on one end, Lady Catherine and Darcy on the other. But when Fitzwilliam convinces Lizzie to play piano for him, Darcy crosses the room to join them. Lizzie plays and chats away with both men, teasing and kind of negging Darcy, and sparks fly between the two. Just whether they will catch or start a forest fire is still unclear. Here is Roxanne Eberly on Fitzwilliam's role in these chapters. I mean, he is a necessary element in facilitating conversation between Elizabeth and Darcy. Elizabeth and Darcy always, almost always need that third element of the triangle to allow them 
to explore their attraction to each other. And so, you know, my favorite scene in Pride and Prejudice is over the piano, where Elizabeth teases and flirts simultaneously with both Darcy and Fitzwilliam. And you need Fitzwilliam there, you know, kind of feeding her the lines until Darcy can kind of catch up. And Darcy is more comfortable in that scene in a way that he's not ever really that comfortable at Netherfield because this is his cousin. They're joint guardians. They're kind of co-parenting Georgiana. It's a scene, right, in which Darcy says, I, neither of us perform well for strangers, you know, but he really means I do not perform for strangers. I require a lot to feel intimacy. And it's really one of, I think, a, a key turning point in the novel where we really recognize Darcy's vulnerability as well as his arrogance. Everyone is watching someone in this chapter. Fitzwilliam is watching Lizzie. Lady Catherine is watching Darcy. And Lizzie is watching Anne de Bourgh. She's trying to suss out whether Darcy wants to marry Anne. She's in theory assessing this because she knows that Caroline wants to marry Darcy. And she wants Caroline to be thwarted. But there might be another reason that Lizzie is interested in who Darcy wants to marry. Here is Roxanne Eberly again, this time on Anne de Bourgh. One way to read or write is the way she's been read in literary criticism as kind of evidence of the way in which the aristocracy is kind of weakening itself through intermarriage and one could argue like the hoarding of wealth and property. I think that's usually how she's been read. I find her a profoundly sad figure. It's as though she's been consumed by her mother, that there's nothing there. Like, who is Anne de Borg? We only see her in passing. She doesn't speak maybe at all. I'm not sure she ever has a moment of direct discourse, because how could you get a word in Edwise if Lady Catherine de Borg was your mother? So it's almost, right, like an extreme version of the Bennets and Mrs. Bennet. Only, right, the Bennet sisters contest, they resist, and and doesn't have the ability. And she's kind of doubly oppressed because she also has that governess who hangs over her. Even though I don't totally agree with this theory, it is interesting to see Anne as a series of critiques. She's a critique of children who don't talk back to their parents, although Austin doesn't want children who totally disobey their parents either. She's a critique of too much intermarriage among the rich. And Anne is also a critique of a strong woman. Watch out, she'll have so many opinions, her child won't even be able to thrive. That is what some people say Lady Catherine is up to, that she is that domineering. She has made her child nearly invisible, like Saturn devouring his son. Chapter 32 starts with Lizzie alone at Hunsford writing a letter. She hears a guest approaching the house and assumes that it's Lady Catherine, so she hides what she's writing. It's as if Lady Catherine can poison everything just by being in the same room as it. Except the person arriving isn't actually Lady Catherine. It's Darcy, who's come to visit the parsonage. He's clearly caught off guard finding Lizzie alone, but there's no turning back. She has to welcome him into the house and offer him tea, so she does. It's awkward. His behavior says he's in love with her, 
His words do not. When Charlotte finally arrives home, Darcy quickly takes his leave, and Austin's famous narration takes us into Charlotte's head. She continues to have suspicions about Darcy's feelings for Elizabeth, but she's decided not to talk about it with Lizzie, at least not yet. She doesn't want to get Lizzie's hopes up, for despite all of Lizzie's words about disliking Darcy, Charlotte suspects that Lizzie's mind might be changed with a declaration of love. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, what amazing research have you done today to help us understand these chapters? I've been thinking about, as Roxanne Eberly points out, and I think you and I have as well, how class is just baked into everything here. And it really gets articulated really directly when Darcy comes over. He and Lizzie are having this awkward conversation Darcy says to Lizzie, isn't it lovely that Charlotte Lucas settled so close to home? And Lizzie's saying, what do you mean so close to home? It's close for you because you can afford that kind of travel. It's different for Charlotte. And it made me think about how much distance is related to wealth. What it costs to travel 50 miles was pretty exorbitant if you didn't have it and felt like a walk in the park if you did. And so I was looking a bit into what the roads were like and who managed them. And it was it was interesting to realize, as I think I keep realizing episode after episode, how Austin was writing this at such a transitional time. So as Austin is writing, it's pretty soon after there's been the Turnpike Act. So it's not like the state controlled the roads, paved the roads, made things workable for people to travel. Everything was still completely privatized then. But they realized that the roads were practically impassable, right? So, you know, we have letters from the late 1700s that indicate that ruts in the roads could be as much as four feet deep, that talk about what it was like for horses to try to traverse the impossible mud and snow that would exist on these roads and how poorly they were kept up everywhere. And so... England said, well, if it's your parish, it's your problem. And then the parishes said, well, give us the right to charge people to travel our roads. And thereby, we got the turnpike system. But the turnpike system, you know, was completely uneven, depending on where you were traveling, how many horses you had, what sort of carriage you might have. For example, in Sussex, if you had one horse pulling your carriage, that would cost three pence on a road. If you had four, it would cost three times that much. But if you had one horse, it wouldn't get you very far very quickly. If you had four, it would. If you had eight and you could swap out those four when they got tired, that would make a difference too. It would depend on what sort of carriage the horses were pulling. So, you know, there's all this talk in this book about what sort of carriages people have, right? It it came up as soon as the as the Netherfield ball. And on the one hand, that's a marker of status. On the other hand, that's it's a marker of of how people could afford to think about distance and time, whether they had a carriage that could be pulled by four horses. Furthermore, there's the whole cost of what it means to travel overnight and pay people to take you somewhere. 
And so what it means to just, you know, set out on the road is hardly a question of whether you have the right carriage, the right horses, enough money for the turnpikes. It's really quite an expensive thing. So what it meant to travel safe, what it meant to travel comfortably, quickly, etc., would have been so radically different for a Darcy than it would have been for a Lizzie. I mean, this is such an interesting check your privilege moment between Lizzie and Darcy. And I, I would imagine that it was quite rare for someone like Darcy to be checked like this. So we can see why he loves Lizzie. Most people would be like, oh, yeah, isn't it lucky that Charlotte lives so close, 50 miles, even though they were sitting there thinking, don't you understand that it costs a lot of money to tip the porter? Like, Jesus. But the fact that Lizzie is like, no, you arrogant jerk. I understand why that's exciting for Darcy. It's so boring. He's over at Rosings being fawned over by Lady Catherine. It's, his life is just scripted for him. He's going to marry Anne, who never talks. And like, here's this girl who's like willing to disagree with him. And this conversation in general is fascinating, right? Because we know that he's trying to figure out if Lizzie would be comfortable being far from Longbourn. And she doesn't know that that's the fishing expedition that he's on. And she's essentially saying distance is money. And I would imagine that Darcy is receiving that as like, oh, well, okay, I have money if that's what you're worried about. And yet I don't feel like he's revealing his hand in any way. And Austin is writing it so much that we're experiencing it from Lizzie's perspective, right? You know, he's silent. He's taciturn. She's annoyed by him. I mean, I know I'm always like crapping on Darcy and it's got to be so annoying at this point to hear me just like pouring ice water all over this relationship. But there's no chemistry here. (laughs) And I love I love that Roxanne Emberley points out that he needs like the safety of that third person. He needs that triangle to to sort of play around with flirting a little bit. But the fact that he freezes so much in this situation and that we don't get to feel him thrilling to her agency, to her voice, to her pushing him. It's interesting. It doesn't it doesn't lay the groundwork for me personally. And I don't think it's supposed to. Right. Because the proposal's coming up soon. And I think it's supposed to catch all of us by surprise. And I think it's supposed to be kind of like the greatest mystery novels where you find out who it was and you are shocked and you're like, oh, but they've been laying the groundwork the whole time. Look at this. You know, I had this great conversation with some of our patrons the other day about what is the free and direct discourse that happens because it's limited, right? When the narrative sort of omniscient third comes in in the novel, it doesn't come in from 100 miles away from Lizzie. We're not like this is what's going on in London with Jane. It is always sort of close to Elizabeth. But we do find out what Charlotte is thinking in the room, what other people sort of near Lizzie are thinking And I think what the narrator is trying to do is show us what Lizzie is thinking and all of the things that Lizzie is missing 
that she would technically have access to the information. So she would technically have access to the information that Mary would marry Collins, right? So that gets called out. Lizzie just doesn't turn toward Mary and doesn't talk to Mary. And so that's missed. And I think that in these chapters, I think that the narrator agrees with you that Darcy is not making his intentions clear because that doesn't get articulated. And secretly, Darcy is into Elizabeth. In fact, sort of the opposite gets articulated. We get into Charlotte's head for a minute where Charlotte is like, he keeps showing up and like he would only do that if he was in love with her, but he doesn't behave as if he's in love with her. So he probably isn't. I think Darcy is playing this so close to the vest that we have no reason to believe that he is in love with her. And it is only after the proposal that we can go back and look at it and be like, oh my God, of course, it was there the whole time. But I love that. I love the shock of the proposal. I love what you're saying about the adjacency of this free indirect discourse, because it's really feeling to me as you're describing it like sort of a precursor of cinema, like the way filmmaking works, right? So we have a shot on the room where Lizzie is, but that doesn't mean that Lizzie's looking at everything inside that shot. The audience gets to see other people's reactions, even if Lizzie doesn't. But the audience doesn't really get to see what's happening outside that shot. And it's interesting that this is a film that has been adapted so much as though Austen was already sort of directing from her authorship in a way that feels so far advanced of whatever technology existed at that time, but that really gave us a, a craving, a certain way of how we want to exist with some sort of objective narration, but also a very, very narrow point of view based way of thinking about character development, emotions, the rest of it. I just think that we're on the same journey as Lizzie. And so, of course, we don't love Darcy yet. He's an idiot. He's saying things like 50 miles of good road. What's that? And Lizzie's like, well, first of all, you have the option when the road is bad to like switch to a horse. And I don't as a woman. And second of all, with a, a poorly sprung carriage and without enough money, 50 miles of even good road is really hard. And so I feel like we are totally in Lizzie and missing it. Right. And for people who are cranky about Darcy, like I am, and like perhaps first-time readers would be, especially readers not of Darcy's class at that time, the fact that he is not pushing back against this, the fact that he's accepting it, means that when it is time to love him later, we're going to love him because of this. This is, you know, now part of their history that she can push back in this way, that she can be vocal in this way, that she can cut through the bullshit, see the systemic inequality, call him on it, and he will love her for it instead of being appalled. This is what will make us love him. So Charlotte's not wrong when she's like, do you know why you're going to love Darcy? Because he loves Lizzie. Of course, Charlotte's saying something slightly different that we all love to be flattered. But yeah, I think you're exactly right. Like, that's an incredible thing. It shouldn't be, but it is. The other thing is, I think that Lizzie's actions sometimes belie her feelings in ways that even she isn't aware of. She is kind of comfortable around Darcy, right? The the really remarkable thing to me in the scene, or one of them, is she starts shit-talking Collins really easily, Darcy is trying to talk to her about Charlotte and is like, is your friend happy here? And Lizzie's like, yeah, the house is nice. 
And I think given the fact that she married an idiot, she's as happy as she can be. I'm not quite sure it was a good decision, but she seems okay with it. And it's like a bold, gossipy move. And I don't know if it is telling us that Lizzie just hates Darcy so much she doesn't even care what he thinks about her, or if she's so comfortable with him that even without noticing, she is willing to say to him what she won't even quite say to Mrs. Gardner or Jane. Like, she's ruder to Darcy about Collins, or more brutally honest, than she is to Mrs. Gardner or Jane. I think it's even more than comfort. I think it's intimacy. I think that she feels like they have a shared perspective on the world and that that came out when they were stuck at Netherfield together. You know, the way that they think about books, about people. I think they have similar standards and a similar prickliness and a similar desire for like as little bullshit as possible. And I think that that's the sort of like incredibly refreshing window that gets cracked between the two of them. And And those moments exist between her and Darcy in a way that they don't really exist with anyone else. Like with Jane, she can't say these things, or she can, but she knows the response is going to be Jane trying to think best of a situation. She and Charlotte seem to be in such different places right now. Maybe they used to be able to talk to each other that way. But it's really with Darcy that she can kind of call it like she sees it, because she knows that he wants that on some level and that he does it himself. There's sort of a meeting of the minds, you met your match intimacy there, which I think is also laying the groundwork for what's to come. And I think all of this leads well to the moment that we wanted to look closely at this week, which is this moment around the piano in which, as Roxanne Eberly points to, Lizzie is sitting playing And Fitzwilliam is there and Darcy joins. And Lizzie and Fitzwilliam are sort of ganging up on Darcy. They're teasing him. Uh, Lizzie teases Darcy saying, you know, he didn't dance with anyone, even though several women needed a dancing partner. And Darcy counters by being like, I didn't know anybody. How how could I have danced with anyone? And Lizzie's like, "Uh, you could have asked to be introduced. You could have introduced yourself. There are all sorts of ways you can get to know someone, especially at a ball. Darcy's like, I'm not good at that. And Lizzie says, you know, well, I'm not very good at things either. I'm not very good at the piano, for example. And then this is the quote. But then I have always supposed it to be my own fault because I will not take the trouble of practicing. It is not that I do not believe my fingers as capable as any other woman's of superior execution. Right? And she's saying, and you could practice being civil, (laughs) and being fun, and introducing yourself to people. And I think that this sentence is interesting in a few ways. One, that Lizzie is self-deprecating and charming as always, that she's like, I don't practice enough, and so I'm not very good at the piano, which is like a very cute shtick. But some of the other things that are happening here are she's saying like, Darcy, I expect more from you. Like, you don't have excuses. You got to just do it, which is where we see Austin's conservative nature come out because essentially she's saying you can do anything if you try. Like if I tried harder at the piano, I'd be good at the piano. And if you tried harder at being charming, you could be charming. And any fault that anyone has is from lack of effort. Oh, it's so interesting. I see this in terms of her and Darcy as like the little crack 
in her prejudicial ideology, the notion that people can change, that they can choose mm. to change, they can work at changing. People are not fixed after all. And she's really let us know that she thinks that Darcy is entirely fixed, right? But she's saying, you know what, actually, you're capable of change. I would be too. If I cared enough to like sit in this house and practice Lady Catherine's piano as much as she's telling me to, I'm sure I could play circles around what I'm doing tonight. And you know what, if you cared about something that actually mattered more than this goddamn piano, I bet that you would find that there's a whole world in yourself that could open where you could find yourself capable of things that you never dreamed. I love your liberal reading of this, and I don't think I disagree. And I don't know. I really struggle with this. I I believe that people can change, right? Like, it is the most hopeful thing in the world to me. People do change, and people change because they meet other people. That's, in my opinion, the number one reason people change is someone new comes into your life, and you're like, oh, I never thought of that perspective. I think fiction changes us because it's a form of meeting other people. But I do not want to take Lizzie's logic very far of like people who are bad at the piano just don't take the trouble of practicing. Some people are bad at the piano because they never got a lesson. Some people are bad at the piano because they don't have a piano to practice on. Some people just aren't good at the piano. And if they love playing the piano, they should play the piano anyway. And I understand that she's not literally talking about the piano. She's using it as a metaphor and she's being self-deprecating in order to like rope Darcy in with the metaphor. I just also think it's an unfair comparison to be like, I can practice playing the piano and you can practice a new personality. (laughs) I agree with you. That is totally an unfair comparison. And it does sort of get to the root of so much of this is what can people change? What is someone's personality and what is some sort of behavior that that can shift, you know? Can you teach someone to be charming? There certainly was a preponderance of charm schools that grew out of this exact era. And I can't think of anything less charming than someone being educated in charm at a charm school. (laughs) But then again, this is also a measure of class, right? Charm schools were really class schools. They weren't actually charm schools. And what I think Lizzie's talking about at bottom is really about class, right? There was this notion that people of lower classes simply could never learn the charm, the accomplishments, the arts. They could not be elevated into places in society where they didn't belong because they were not born to do that. They were born to be workers. They were born to be poor. And that there's this very fixed notion of class that goes back as early as capital itself that we are very much stuck with right now. And certainly were in Regency England. But I think that Lizzie saying that her fingers are as capable as of any other woman's of superior execution is her basically saying, don't keep me stuck on the class ladder here. Like, yeah, you think that Anne, who can barely even pick up her hands, is going <laughs> to really nail this concerto just because her mother says that she would if she could because of what? Her birth, her breeding, her her what? It's her class. And I think that there's an element of this that Lizzie's also speaking to. And she's also, in your defense, not saying be more charming. She's saying there were more women than men 
Like, you wouldn't have had to be charming. You would have literally had to walk up to someone. And I think she was saying a little bit of this thing that you and I say a lot, which is like, the person with the power in the room has to do the thing. And Lizzie's like, you could have practiced. Like, you had the power in the room. You should have done the thing. And again, it's another moment where she's calling him out and God bless him. And what I find sexy about him, he likes it. (laughs) She's also encouraging him to face his fear, which she doesn't realize this, but she's essentially encouraging him to take the steps that are going to be coming pretty soon and propose to her. He's going to do the thing that he's most afraid of, right? He's going to take that step in a way where he couldn't even ask someone to dance, and now he's going to do this. And I think part of that is because she's saying, you have to choose to do these things. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Lauren, you know, we like to talk about power and we like to talk about ridiculousness. And I feel like we have a patron saint of both of Lady Catherine in these chapters. And there's one paragraph in particular that I would like to read to you because I had never really registered with me before. And this is about Lady Catherine. It says that Elizabeth soon perceived that though this great lady was not in commission of the peace of the county, she was a most active magistrate in her own parish, the minutest concerns of which were carried to her by Mr. Collins. And whenever any of the cottages were disposed to be quarrelsome, discontented, or too poor, she sallied forth into the village to settle their differences, silence their complaints, and scold them into harmony and plenty." It's just like this power and this ridiculousness where people are going to their minister to talk about problems. He goes and for the entertainment of this bored, rich old lady, tells her everything. And then she swoops in and is like, this is what everybody has to do. And because she actually has power, most likely people do it. This is really bad. It's so weird to me that I feel like I've become the defender of the person who I have hated most in this book. I'm so sorry. Listen, I'm a woman of a certain age who's really thinking about things lately. (laughs) What can I tell you? (laughs) Probably Lady Catherine's exact age. I think that there are a couple different ways to read this. 
And I think that one of the ways to read this is this is this like rich meddling scold who's telling people what to do for her own entertainment. I also think that you could see it as there's a vacuum here. There's a vacuum of advising and of knowledge and of guidance in the entire system, right? They're not turning on NPR to like listen to how to deal with their differences or their crops. They're not looking things up on the internet or even like have access to vast libraries where they can figure out information on their own. What do they have? They've got Collins, who's totally worthless, I'm sure, when it comes to any actual advising. And then they have Lady Catherine, who has flattered herself in her own expertise, but actually may hold some. And instead of saying, I'm just going to sit here in my drawing room and let's let the peasants duke it out and, you know, who's left standing is left standing— She's really invested in trying to make things function, in trying to make sure that there is peace and harmony, in trying to figure out how perhaps the crops can work differently. And she may be doing it in some ways for her own edification, but it's not like she's just getting her nails done and saying, screw them. And I think there is maybe some kindness to bestow on someone who wants to get involved and make a difference, especially as a woman in these situations. I mean, obviously, there's a very long history of rich people telling poor people what to do and those rich people knowing nothing about that. I mean, this is like everything that's wrong with philanthropy, as I think I've said before. You know, the notion that rich people are the experts in the problems of poor people because they're rich is obviously a huge problem. And that the way that rich people tend to, quote unquote, help is to scold. I mean, obviously... There's a lot of bad here, but I think that there is perhaps some decency that lies under that. The way to do that, though, is to become a loving, trusting presence in your community where people want to come to you for your advice. And people are like, do you know what? Lady Catherine will know a lot about this. She has this authority. She's so knowledgeable. She's so kind and generous. It is not to have a spy in Mr. Collins, like getting all of the details and then coming back to Lady Catherine and then swooping in. Certainly the text does not think highly of how Lady Catherine is doing this. I agree with you that there is something better about this than just sitting around and getting her nails done and gambling all of her money away. But I think that, you know, there are better and worse ways to try to be active once you have power. And this like I don't know. I also think that Collins is being a bad person. You're not supposed to tell what you learn about people in chaplaincy. And I obviously don't know what commitments he's made to people, but he's not building trust. Nobody's building trust in their community here. And so it's not the what, but it's the how. I mean, of course, everything that you're saying is absolutely right. He's obviously the worst person. <laughs> he knows that information is currency. He knows that she wants to roll up her, you know, puffed velvet sleeves and get in there. I also think this is who she is. I mean, what you've described, that notion, is the opposite of who this person is. And I think she has become who she has become for reasons that we did not have psychotherapy to analyze back then. <laughs> but let's just say, you know, 
people say, are you working from your spirit or your wound? This lady is all wound and no spirit. And, you know, I imagine that Austin probably had encountered women like her who were fucked up, who were fucked up by being women, who were fucked up by having their husbands die, who were fucked up by having infirmed children, who felt like nothing that they ever intended to do from a place of love worked out right, who were angry, who were brittle, and who needed to feel some power wherever they could. And, you know, it's it's interesting reading through these chapters, how much I feel, and I'm going to do this thing of diagnosing a character in the past, which I realize is super problematic. But what Austin is showing us is literally a case study of narcissistic personality disorder. All the things that she's doing, her need to center herself as the person of power in every single situation, her need to perform virtue, her need to show everyone what she's worth at all times and to elevate herself and to be in on everything, we all know, whether we forgive it or not, comes from trauma. And it, it makes me feel like Austin was really onto something, like she was such a careful observer of people, that she could show us such specific personality traits without even knowing that there was, you know, a disorder attached to them and that one day they would be enumerated in peer-reviewed journals. I mean, it's all right here. And I do find myself thinking, what does it mean that she was a most active magistrate? She did it wrong, but that's kind of a big deal that she did that. There, that's something that that she's mishandling, and it's coming from a dark place in her. But an element of that is something to respect. Yeah, I, I mean, just my read is different. I think she's bored. So much of these three chapters in particular are about how bored everybody is, like, of course, they're coming to visit. They're bored. But I absolutely agree with you that Austin is this incredible observer and like near diagnostician, right? Like she wrote like case studies of things and that this type of personality is one that she writes again and again, right? It's the stepsister-in-law in Sense and Sensibility. It is Mrs. Alton in Emma, right? Like this is something that Austin is obsessed with. This meddling person who has absolutely no self-awareness. And this is the sentence to me where it's you see the depths of Lady Catherine's lack of depth to some extent. Where she says, if I had ever learned the piano, I should have been a great proficient. I'm like, what does that mean? That is a meaningless sentence. You have no idea. And you're telling people constantly not only that they have to learn it, but they have to practice it. What is it about you that leads you to think that if you had learned the piano, you would be a great proficient? And of course, you know, Austin then has Catherine say, no one in England enjoys music more than I do. And then just a few bars into Lizzie playing, she stops listening and starts talking over Lizzie's playing. And so I, I completely agree with you that Austin is obsessed with this kind of person, this narcissistic person. And I, I am curious as to who it is in her life that like she is so keenly observed this and is going to do everything she can to bring them down and to try 
to show them to themselves. And maybe it needs to be so obtuse because she's like, they're never going to know it's them (laughs) because they're too narcissistic to ever notice. (laughs) But this, I would say it's one of the most repetitive tropes in her work. It's also really fascinating how she chooses to not have her main characters bear the cost of that, but the entire county, (laughs) an entire class of people. And so I think that she's not just excoriating what it does for interpersonal relationships, but what it means writ large over a whole power structure. Yeah. Yeah. She's saying you do this and it fucks with people's lives. And frankly, it's still being done, right? Yeah. I mean, Lady Catherine is every rich woman on a board who thinks that she has the answers to things. Yep. I hope to be one one day. You can meddle with me all you want, honey. Yes. I was like, that's the difference between you and Lady Catherine. I do not like you overlaying yourself onto Lady Catherine. As someone who seeks your advice, I seek it. <laughs> I do not tell Ariana, who then secretly goes to you, and then you come barreling in and are like, here's what you should do. Nobody is seeking Lady Catherine's advice ever. I'm just having a little bit of the like, honey, who hurt you response to Lady Catherine that I haven't allowed myself before. Because there, there is pain there. and There is. And there's pain that we don't know about, right? Because this stuff starts very, very early. This is early childhood shit. But then we also see the incredible chronology of disappointments that she is having to shoulder and feel powerless about. And that was all she felt like she could really do to wrest control out of her own life, right? She's trying to convince us all that her daughter would be this great pianist if she could just lift her hands up to the piano. And because of all the inbreeding and consolidation of capital and cowing by her mother, like, Anne can't even do the most basic thing that any girl is expected to do, which is play the goddamn piano. That's a source of shame for Lady Catherine. This is all all coming, I think, from a place of deep shame. Yeah. And even the sentence, right, if I had ever learned I should have been a great proficient, it's a sad sentence, right? Like, I never had the opportunity to learn. Lauren, we also meet, truly, I think one of the characters who Austin loves most, which is Fitzwilliam in these chapters. This is Darcy's cousin. And he is just like charming and lovely and easy to chat with and respectable. And we never find out anything bad about him. And he's Georgiana's guardian. And (laughs) like he teases Darcy. He's like not annoying in the Bingley way where he's like, I don't know, I have no personality. I would probably follow anyone anywhere. He's just like the loveliest man. And here he is. Here he is. And he is not a magnet for Lizzie's love. He's got it all, right? Except two things. He's not handsome. And he's not inheriting what Darcy's inheriting. We don't find out any other possible mark against him. So what does it mean? Because, you know, it's not like he's a pauper. What does it mean to us that Lizzie isn't into Fitzwilliam? So if Fitzwilliam were to propose, I think Lizzie would say yes. I agree with you that I don't think she's into him. But, you know, we'll find out later. Like, she's not rich enough for him, so he's not going to propose. But I I do wonder if, like, enough money is sort of one of the, one of the preconditions for love for reasonable people. Like, neither of them can be that interested in each other because – they're not going to be able to get married and so flirt and have fun. But like, 
let other people interrupt your conversations and like don't steal away and go on walks together. There's just a practicality to both of these characters, which is part of why we like both of them so much. And Lizzie has even told us this about Wickham. Like, I'm going to try not to fall in love with people who are too poor for me to marry. At least that's my read. Isn't it something that he can be Darcy's cousin and Darcy can have all the money in the world and Fitzwilliam can have none of it? They bought him a colonelship. And if he dies, they won't get a refund. That's the way it worked. (laughs) That's all he's got. And it's wild to me how he's just going to be a permanent guest. And yet I feel like this is the fan fiction I want is like when when Lizzie and Fitzwilliam take like a long walk together, of course, accompanied by other people. Because even in your fan fiction, you don't get to like throw off the structures of society. (laughs) But I mean, what they have in common is they've both essentially been screwed by the same thing. They've both essentially been entailed out of whatever they could stand to inherit to have the freedom to just do whatever they want, you know, within some boundaries, but to not have the economic pressures that are supposed to determine love. But then again, I guess that's what all life is, isn't it? Who are we except for who we're born to and when we're born? So that'll give you Pemberley or that'll maybe get you shot by a Frenchman. I don't know. (laughs) Well, Lauren, next episode, we're going to find out that Darcy thwarted young love, but that he himself is in love. It's a big one. I have goosebumps. Just I literally you can't see them because this is all audio, but I, I have goosebumps <laughs> just thinking about it. It's it's a lot. It's going to be so good. So Vanessa and I have talked about this piano scene and the question of whether people can learn or grow, but in it, there's a lot more going on. There's a lot going on with Darcy and there's a lot going on in terms of notions of performance. And we wanted to bring another member of our Not Sorry community, the lovely Margaret H. Willison, who leads our Pride and Prejudice pilgrimage oh, you lucky people who are signing up to be on it, who has a hot take about this scene that she wanted to share with us. I should note she's also the resident Austinite on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. And let's give her a ring, see what she thinks. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this scene. Okay, I know that you have a hot take, so just just let's start with that. Just lay it on me. This is, for me, uh, especially with the pilgrimages I've run, like one of the key scenes in the whole novel. And I think a lot of what gets focused on is what Elizabeth says about practice on an instrument. But what I actually think is interesting and sort of a key to one of the debates about Darcy in the reading of this book is is how he responds to this information and what he communicates about his assumptions about social graciousness. The things that I want to call attention to are when Darcy is describing 
the process of, uh, quote unquote, recommending himself to strangers. He says of himself, I certainly have not the talent which some people possess of conversing easily with those I've never seen before. I cannot catch their tone of conversation or appear interested in their concerns, as I often see done. So actually, Lauren, what jumps out to you about that sentence? <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it's like the ultimate privilege, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. what women have to do is we have to charm, we have to perform, and certainly, certainly within the circumstances of the Bennett family, right? It is their currency. I mean, does he really think that women sit around just wanting to be bored to tears by other people's chit-chat? No, this is how we need to traffic in the world if we want to survive. And of course, he doesn't have to survive. He doesn't have to do any of this. He gets to choose. Right. And I think what is interesting about this is that it comes at Darcy from two directions, right? Like one, I think he is being vulnerable about something he knows is a shortcoming. Like I think if Darcy could just like snap his fingers and be socially adept, he would, right? He 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 sees how his friends are. And I think he does feel the discomfort of like not being able to like go to a ball like Netherfield and perform with the excellence people expect of him. However, there's also an assumption that it is an appearance. It is a performance. It is not sincere interest. It is not genuine engagement. It is just a show. And that show is beneath him. And what I think is very interesting, in his mind, also beneath Elizabeth, which, based on how mean she's been to him consistently, isn't actually like that unreasonable a conclusion to come to. I think Darcy experiences that and he thinks, ah, like we are two people who see that this is valueless. Like we are two intelligent people who are above social niceties and our spirits are too strong and too honest to be softened and made polite and made convenient. And part of that comes from this quote, but even more of that comes from his response to the comment about her piano playing, where she's disparaging it. She says, like, I'm not very good at this because I never practice. And what he says instead is, you are perfectly right. You've employed your time much better. No one admitted to the privilege of hearing you can think anything wanting. We neither of us perform to strangers. And as you pointed out, Lauren, that is an absolutely preposterous thing to say to a woman in 19th century England, especially a woman of marriageable age. Like Elizabeth is performing to strangers constantly. Arguably, she is performing to strangers right now at the piano. So she's sitting there performing to strangers and he's sitting there thinking, we're both bigger than this. And isn't it exciting that we found each other? And you're like, yes. It's exciting you found each other, but no, buddy, you're not bigger than this. Nobody's actually bigger than this on a moral level. And of course, Austin is really leaning into this piano playing <laughs> metaphor, right? So we have Lady Catherine, who has no social graces, saying, well, I never learned to play the piano. And her daughter, Anne, who's incapable of having any social demeanor <laughs> at all, is incapable of learning how to play the piano. And yet it is seen as the thing that all women are supposed to do to perform. There's even that little language where Lizzie's saying to Fitzwilliam, like, tell me where to put my fingers, boy. <laughs> Which, you know, I think is this incredibly sexualized 
way of thinking about what performing her femininity means. But listening to you talk about this, it's, it's making me think of something that we've thought about before, and I'm curious about it, which is who gets to be an introvert and who gets to be an extrovert? Yeah. I mean, I do think that Lizzie is coming kind of preloaded with charm and with someone who who is someone who gets energy at a party and not just someone who wants to vanish from it. And we've seen the cost for, for Mary's lack of social graces and her own introversion. And I just sort of wonder within just basic personality types. Who who gets to be themselves, really? Well, right. And there are even finer gradients than that, right? Like there are incredibly interesting conversations about to what degree do you have to perform interest that center around Jane, who is very socially gracious, but guarded and just a little bit withdrawn. Like her emotions don't come easily to the forefront. And you hear Charlotte Lucas, who's obviously a very intelligent person and like a very canny observer saying like, she's screwing this up. She's going to lose him because he's the one with the power here. And he needs to feel like she's a sure thing. And I think Darcy. So in some ways he's disadvantaged because he's absolutely an introvert. He does not like being in big groups of people. He doesn't know how to conduct himself. And I think that there's a lot of readers feel a lot of sympathy for that. And I obviously, as a deep extrovert, can't pretend that I have that personal experience, but I feel for him. And I certainly feel for the various adaptations that present sort of like the socially awkward Darcy thesis, like the 2005 Pride and Prejudice adaptation. But at the same time, it is more complicated than just he's not good at some things that we expect people to be good at and that is uncomfortable for him. It is also he's not good at those things. And at this point in the narrative, he thinks he's above them. And he thinks he is above them not by right of wealth or social position, you know, not because people are toadying to him, but because the truth of his person is so valuable that people are willing to contend with the lack of social nicety to get to experience his honest insight, right? And that's not the whole picture. I think that is part of why he has the position that he has. But the other thing is like, you know, he's just like a tall, handsome white man with money. You know, when haven't they had an easy time of it? So I'm curious. Under, simmering under all of this, do you feel like there are sparks between Lizzie and Darcy? Does this feel like a conversation that has romantic potential in it? What I would see and what I think I love about the book and I love about this love story is what Lizzie feels consistently is someone who wants to show up and interact with the parts of her that are inconvenient right? And meet her in equality in the parts that are inconvenient. And I think Darcy's willingness to keep putting himself in the way of her barbs and then to keep meeting them, like listening and responding and responding with equivalent wit and conversational finesse. Like, I don't think that Lizzie likes it necessarily yet, but I think that there's an energy there that she doesn't get from anyone else in her life. And that it is very interesting for her. Well, they can talk about ideas. Yeah. They're actually they can talk about ideas. having a conversation of depth in the least likely circumstances, 
which I think has great currency. Yeah, and he appreciates how much of her authentic self she is. She does it to repel him, and instead it clearly entices him. And I think on some level that's working on her. Margaret, thank you for joining us. And I so envy everyone who gets to travel with you into the world of Austin. I mean, guys, if you like my my hot take on Darcy, just wait until you hear my thoughts on Mr. Bennett. <laughs> in person, in England. In person, in England. Literally live from Pemberley. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Lauren. It's a, it's a thrill to get to expound on this text. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rompod. If you love the show, please leave us a review wherever you are listening to my amazing voice right now. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by ACAST. Thanks, as always, to our Jane-level patrons, Viscount Elise Kennegrotnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Snegas of Breakfast Carbston, Night Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leia B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Landia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. And special thanks this week to Roxanne Everly and the great Margaret H. Willison, now of Not Sorry Productions, for talking to us. And of course, to Lara Glass, AJ Yaramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.